WHMP. Welcome to the show. We are so thrilled to have back in the studio Steve Waxman. He is a professor of music at Smith College. His new book is Live Music in America. He will be at Historic Northampton for a book reading, assigning a Q&A on Sunday, 2 o'clock, this Sunday, January 15th. His book and the title of the talk, Live Music in America, Historic Northampton. It is encouraged for you to please, please sign up. Uh, people can get in at the door, but please, it's an in-person event, and I'm sure it's going to be fascinating. Steve Waxman, thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate your being here in the studio today. Your new book, Live Music in America, I need to ask you, because there's a great sadness in the music world with the passing of guitar maestro Jeff Beck. Indeed, in the Daily Hampshire Gazette, a big piece in the Nation and World section, boundary-pushing guitar maestro Jeff Beck dies. Jeff Beck, a guitar virtuoso who pushed the boundaries of blues, jazz, and rock and roll, influencing generations along the way, becoming known as the guitar player's guitar player, has died. He was 78. Jeff Beck was a real influence. Jeff Beck really matters in this world of music. Oh, absolutely. You know, he's part of, I think, a core of guitarists that came out of the 60s who really kind of defined what the electric guitar could be. Uh, they all, you know, the, the, the sort of trio, there's a trinity even, it's like Clapton, Beck, and Page. Now, of course, there's tons of other great guitarists, including Jimi Hendrix, but those three had the distinct connection of being in the Yardbirds, the band the Yardbirds, the British band, at different times, right? First Clapton, Clapton was succeeded by Beck, Beck was succeeded by Page. Um, so it was as a member of the Yardbirds that Jeff Beck first really drew attention. And his style was so different from Eric Clapton. Like at that time, Eric Clapton was like the blues purist who just tried to play like the sort of great blues guitarist who preceded him. Beck went in a totally different direction. He was experimenting with feedback in a much more inventive way. He was like using the amplifier as part of his instrument in a really distinct way that was akin to what someone like Jimi Hendrix also did, you know, like kind of taking the electric guitar and actually like making the electric part of it matter more. Yeah, I remember the first time watching someone take, I can't remember who, but taking the guitar, putting it in front of the amp, creating those feedback. Right. That, whoa. whoa. And first I thought it was a mistake. I said, wow, this is, it, this is just wild. This is so exciting. Well, a lot of people thought it was a mistake. I, you know, it, at first when the electric guitar was created, you weren't supposed to do that. It was sort of designed, well, it, it wasn't designed not to allow that. And that was a problem. Like people wanted to eliminate the ability for the guitar to feedback because it was annoying. It was seen as a distraction. But then as guitarists started ex experimenting more with what you could actually do with amplification, it became clear that like you could actually do some pretty compelling and interesting and experimental things by using that thing that people had thought of as a mistake to their advantage. And Beck was absolutely one of the first artists who started to do that. But that's hardly the extent of his uh, artistry. He just had such a distinctive way of phrasing melodies, of approaching the way in which he played a solo or even just played a rhythm part uh, part of it is that, like, unlike most guitarists of his ilk, he almost always played finger style as opposed to playing with a pick. So he was always touching the strings with his fingers, and that gave his playing, I think, kind a of a very folk, distinct... And a folk, folk sound because of the finger picking. And yet, and yet there's nothing folk-like about his playing at all. It's, it's a very unusual effect, and if you watch him play, I think it's kind of mystifying to understand the relationship between what he's doing with his fingers and the sounds that you hear. But I think what it did was it gave him an incredible sensitivity in the way that he played each individual note. I'd like to know this. Your book is titled Live Music in America, A History from Jenny Lind to Beyonce. And one aspect of this history, and this is a history and it's really fascinating, and I learned so much from reading a lot of it, Live Music in America, A History from Jenny Lind to Beyonce, I, I would like to know how much of amplification and recording changed our appreciation and mm. our way of living with music. Because, of course, before there was recording, there were only live performances. And before there were 
where it was amplification, uh, the, the venues had to be, uh, re regardless of, well, not regardless, but notwithstanding how some were designed to actually allow voices to project, performances were live. They necessarily were. So I'd like to hear your perspective on how amplification and recording changed our people's perception and experience of music. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why I wrote the book to be, I mean, it's a very long book, but more to the point, like why it covers so much time is precisely because I wanted to go back to the moment before recording happened. Like it, it would have been easy on some level to just write a history of live music that covered like 50 years or something. But I thought it was really important to go back to the time before there was recording to, so that you could precisely see something of what kinds of changes happen when you get to the kinds of technological advances that you're talking about. Um, there's a kind of um, assumption in a lot of music historical writing that live music doesn't even really exist as such until recording comes up because nobody would have had to call it live music. You know, it's like, what is live music? It's just music, right? But then you have recording and there's something else that's not recorded music, so it becomes live music. Um, I think that itself is a sign of how much recording makes a difference at a certain point and it's hard to pin down when this is but certainly sometime over the first half of the 20th century people become more accustomed to listening to recordings than to going to see music and hear music live and i think that does change a lot in terms of what you expect from a live performer that you go in with more of a pre-existing idea of what you're going to hear that it means performers then have to make more complex sort of negotiations about how they present their music relative to what a fan would already have heard on a record. Um, and, you know, in an improvising medium like jazz, that has one sort of implication. Um, in a composed medium like classical music, it has different sorts of implications. Um, but... You know, recording allows for a kind of re-listening, right? Listening over and over again that live music never allows. So I think one of the reasons live music remains alluring even after, well after recording becomes so common is that there's still something about it that seems like it's an experience you can't reproduce the same way. Right, but there's something about the history of recording that changed the way in which people experienced music absolutely and a big part of that i think is about public versus private right so when you're listening to a recording i mean nowadays you can kind of listen to a recording everywhere right but in in the period when recordings are new for the most part recordings were very much domestic products uh live music could also happen in the home right i mean people play pianos in the home play guitars in the home but live music in the way that I write about it is very much a public phenomenon. And I think a big part of what makes live music distinct is not just that you leave the house, but that you leave the house and you're among other people. Whereas recording, you can listen to recording entirely by yourself. Which, it's, of course, was the allure of it when RCA, absolutely. Record Corporation of America, came out and you could buy a, 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 a record... A, and you could take it and play it on your phonograph, and there were 78 RPMs, and there were 33s, and there were 45s, and if you wanted to hear a, a song, you could play it and play it over and over and over again, which my parents would complain about, which because that's what they were designed to do, uh, and exactly. that's what the kids were designed to do. But that, oh, that, that technology was a phenomenal uh, change in people's experience of music. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that history and what you, what your perception is with regard to how it has changed over well, the course of the last century. With regard to recording? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think with recording, what's changed so much is the way that the technology has allowed us to be able to listen almost anywhere, right? So like, there's a term that people use of like ubiquitous, ubiquitous music, right? That music now literally can be something we access anywhere. There's something strange about that, if you think about it. Like, if you take a step back from the common ways in which we use music, it's like, it kind of demystifies music when it's everywhere. It, it makes it into a thing that maybe is a little bit less, quote-unquote, special. Um, I think there was something about the period before recording existed where the opportunity to hear music 
it was so distinct. It was like it didn't happen every day. Yeah, which was when, by the way? I mean, when did I don't? When did recording? When did records happen? Well, it happens in stages. I mean, the phonograph effectively is invented in 1877 or thereabouts by Edison and various others. Um, certainly not until the early 20th century do you have recordings becoming anything like commonplace. And I would say, really, like the big turning point is somewhere between the 1920s and the 1940s. That's but, that's when you, and radio was a big part of that too, right? Because Recordings is one thing, but then radio is a whole other way for music to enter people's homes and for people to be able to even access live performances, right, without actually having to be in a venue. So it, it also really sort of changes what you might call the sort of cultural geography of how people experience music, that even being in the home, you can now hear somebody performing somewhere else. That's like a pretty dramatic change in the culture. And there's certainly a synergy between the automobile and music because... Absolutely. Well, because radio is like, you know, that's one of the primary media through which people experience music in their cars or to vice versa, right? That the car becomes one of the primary vehicles, literally and figuratively, through which people are listening to the radio and having music as part of their like lived experience outside of the home. We're speaking with Steve Waxman, his new book, Live Music in America, a history from Jenny Lynn to Beyonce. He will be at Historic Northampton two o'clock this Sunday, January Steve, I want to ask you a question, and I will come back to Jenny Lynn, I promise, and I want to hear more about the... Can I also just interject one thing? Um, The talk on Sunday is actually not at Historic Northampton. It's at Northampton Center for the Arts. Oh, I'm sorry. Right, 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 right. Uh, right. It's sponsored by Historic Northampton and the Center for the Arts, but in terms of, like, if people actually want to go, I want to be sure they go to the right place. Right. So the location is Northampton Center for the Arts, the Flex Room there. Uh, just wanted to clarify that. No, I apologize. So again, at right, sponsored by Historic Northampton at Northampton Center for the Arts, 33 Holly Street, 2 o'clock Sunday. Indeed. Let me ask you this. Um, I know I'm literally diving into the middle of this story, <laughs> uh, but you write this. Much ink has been spilled on the question, what was the first rock and roll record? Um, and I learned something because I would have sworn that the most important, anyway, first rock and roll record was Bill Haley and the Comets. Um, that's not exactly true. It's not even sort of true, but what was the first rock and roll record and what was its reception across the country? Well, this is a debate that people have, so there's not a settled answer, but one of the, uh, most settled answers that, that rock historians have come upon is, uh, the song Rocket 88. Uh, and it's credited to a group called Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats, uh, but it's actually a group that was led by Ike Turner. Uh, and it's it's a song that, you know, the the genres were in flux during this period. This is this is a song from 1951. So you could have called the song blues, you could have called the song rhythm and blues, you could have called it jump blues. What makes it rock and roll? Um, it had a very driving beat, both, again, kind of literally and figuratively, like it's a song about a car. Songs about cars have a very distinct kind of presence in rock and roll, right? Chuck Berry's first big hit, Maybelline, was a song about a car. There's like, there's something about the energy of driving that captured the imagination of a lot of artists of that time. And of course, it prompts a kind of energetic musical output that is akin to what we identify with rock and roll. So this was a song about a car. It's by this great charging R&B group. Uh, It has a strong horn section, but it also features... Uh, something very unusual, which is like this very distinct sort of electric guitar sound that was unlike anything that had ever been heard before on record. Uh, and the the mythology around this is that they're driving to the recording studio, Ike Turner and his band, and the guitarist amplifier, the guitarist's name is Willie Kaiser. the guitarist amplifier falls off the um, roof of the car on the way to the studio, <laughs> and it break, breaks a speaker cone, which is... You know, it's kind of like what you were saying before about feedback. Like, this is not good, right? You break a speaker cone, and you don't get the kind of sound that you typically want out of a speaker. But they had... The cone is the front part of the... It's it's the thing that basically amplifies the the sound, right? Um, And so it's broken, and when it's broken, it means the sound gets distorted. Now, distortion, like feedback, is one of those things that historically people had tried to avoid, 
Um, but Sam Phillips, who is the record producer at the record label Sun Records, uh, where they're making this record, he's kind of got an experimental approach to making records. So he's like, you know what? Let's use it. Let's see how it goes. Willie Carzart starts playing. He, really, his only part in the song, for the most part, is this bass line. But he plays this bass line with a kind of fuzz sound that you really like had never heard before. And that's a big part of the reason why this song gets pegged as like potentially one of the first songs that you could say is a rock and roll song from 1951. We are speaking with Steve Waxman, professor of music at Smith College, longtime professor of music at Smith College. His new book is Live Music in America, A History from Jenny Lynn to Beyonce. He will be at 33 Hawley Street, and I apologize for if I was not clear about that. Sponsored by Historic Northampton. That's Sunday at 2 o'clock, January 15th. Live Music in America. We're going to take a quick quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear more about Live Music in America. We're going to talk about uh, Jenny Lynn. We're going to talk about other artists. And boy, is this a wonderful book and such an exciting topic. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long, right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. Five eight six one thousand. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call five eight six one thousand. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Most of us participate in sports like the weekly golf game, tennis match, trail run, or ski outing. Whether you're a high school, collegiate, or professional athlete, or weekend warrior, the same rules apply. Follow an exercise regimen that will help you build a strong foundation and prevent injury in the first place. I'm Dr. Connor Ziegler, sports medicine specialist and board-certified orthopedic surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. Sports medicine is my passion, and my surgical specialty involves arthroscopic and open procedures of the shoulder, elbow, hip, and knee. One of the most common injuries I treat are anterior cruciate ligament or ACL tears, which typically occur from non-contact twisting injuries in a variety of sports. Not infrequently, ACL tears occur with injury to other structures as well. At New England Orthopedic Surgeons, we offer comprehensive management of your condition no matter the severity. But if you find that you've experienced an injury, my surgical team is dedicated to providing outstanding care to help you recover and get you back in the game. For more information, visit neortho.com. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with professor of music, Steve Waxman. His new book, Live in America, A History of, from Jenny Lynn to Beyonce. He will be at 33 Hawley Street. That, 
at an event sponsored by Historic Northampton, 2 o'clock this Sunday, January 15th. Steve, I would love to know your perspective with regard to, and I love the parts about, of course, the 50s and the 60s and that history. Uh, but I would like to have your perspective on uh, Jenny Lynn. And okay. I, love, I love reading the part of the book where you say, uh, Lynn performed at Northampton's first church. Prior to the concert, there was concern about whether the city housed enough people to generate a sufficient audience for Lynn. And you go on to discuss the population, and then you say what happened. So give us a little bit of the history of what happened here in Northampton and why uh, uh, Jenny Lynn uh, matters and mattered so much. Yeah, well, she mattered in ways that go well beyond her appearance in Northampton, but of course she has that special place in Northampton's own story, um, and I'll certainly be talking about that on Sunday when I give a little overview of some parts of the book, but um, you know, why she mattered more broadly is because when she started to perform in the U.S. in 1850, there really had not been a performing musician prior to that point who whose presence was so widely known and so widely acknowledged. Like, I, I refer to her somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely, as like the first modern pop star. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the promotion of her uh, concerts, which was by the kind of infamous show person, uh, P.T. Barnum, who managed her concert tour, uh, who drummed up tons of publicity around her coming to the U.S. She had She's from Sweden originally. She had been performing in uh, England for several years before she came to the U.S. in 1850. Um, by the time she performed her first concert in New York, there was such a height of anticipation for it. You know, there were thousands of people who came out to meet her boat when she arrived in New York Harbor. Um, there was a rush on ticket sales that was very much like the kind of modern rush when a major pop star is about to have a concert tour. Uh, not unlike the Taylor Swift uh, situation that a lot of people have been talking about recently where her, her recent concert tour sold out like in a jiffy, you know. Um, and she was renowned for having this remarkable voice, but she also was renowned for embodying a certain ideal of white European womanhood, and that mattered a lot. It was a big part of, of her, you know, you talk about stars having a kind of persona that makes them a star, right? It's not just their talent. It's, there's got to be something else that people relate to. That's what people related to. She was seen as being very moral, uh, virtuous, um, good-hearted, and these were values that were just promoted around her f from the start of her concert tour to the end. Uh, and it's that's what was used to sort of drum up interest around her in a community like Northampton as it would have been used to drum up interest around her in New York or Boston or any other places that she would have performed. But by the time she came here, it was just like summer of 1851. She'd already been playing in the U.S. for almost a year at that point. So she was an established attraction, and it was a big deal for somebody who had been playing in these major cities to come to a place like Northampton. And that's why there was this concern, like, can we do her justice? Can we get enough people? And then, of course, what winds up happening is everybody, like, the Northampton concert draws more people than the concert in Springfield. And so that becomes a big point of civic pride. Uh, you know, look at us, this little town, and we show that our patronage of the arts is, like, even stronger than our you know, peers to the south of us. Right, and Springfield is over twice the size of Northampton. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Let me ask about race and class, which is part of your discussion in, in your book, Live Music in America. Give us a comment, if you would, about that. It's a big topic, and it's a significant part of what you write about, but appreciate your perspective, having done 12 years of research and writing or more to put this book together. Give us your comment. Yeah, I mean, race, class, gender are all things that matter a lot to the book. And they matter in live music because they matter in American life. And, and I think a big part of what I try to demonstrate in the book is how much live music is a space in which these basic relationships and principles and values in American culture and society more broadly get played out in a sort of magnified and intensified form. So... Um, 
part of how that matters is like who's included and who's excluded from any given event, right? So to come back to Jenny Lynn for a moment, part of why she stirred so much interest once she starts performing is that her audiences were bigger than almost any artist had ever drawn. And then people start to hypothesize, like, who's in this audience? And what people are seeing is that there's a kind of heterogeneity, especially with regard to class, that was unusual. That, like, by the middle of the 19th century, culture is starting to get a lot more stratified. There's culture for the elites and there's culture for the working classes. But Lind, apparently, at least according to a lot of the news accounts of her performances, was drawing people from both of those constituencies in a way that was becoming increasingly unusual at that point. So there's a you know, move to kind of reflect on like how this sort of presentation of music and culture is related to basic issues around democracy, right? Like how much of our culture can include or address everyone. Now, of course, everyone is not included and addressed because then if you bring race into the equation, for instance, um, you know, the the Lind herself was promoted as being very white, like very much attached to certain European cultural ideals and values. Um, it's not like people of color were, well, people of color were to a large degree excluded from access to her concerts. That would have varied to some degree depending on where in the country you were going to be. But for the most part, segregation, segregated public space was was more the norm than not in the 1850s. And, of course, that wasn't just true in the 1850s. It was also sort of still true in the 1950s, right? So by the time you get to something like rock and roll or even jazz in the 1920s, part of what matters about live music is that performances become a space in which people start to test the boundaries of who's included and who's excluded. Yeah, and one, one group that's excluded is people who can't afford the tickets. Well, that's a big part of it, and that's historically always been an issue, is like, what are the prices? Who, who is this supposed to be for? And price is a really tangible sign of who a certain event is supposed to be for. So Jenny Lynn's concerts were not cheap. Um, you know, there, still today, there's a big difference between going to see a show in a local bar where you might see a couple of local bands and maybe there's not even a cover charge, but you're just expected to buy a couple of drinks and hang out, or going to see a show at like the Fleet Center in Boston or something like that where you're going to be paying probably over $100 a ticket, uh, probably not sitting very close to the stage. And what are you paying for, right? You're paying for access to be close to an artist whose star value has m become such that they're seen as being worth that price for the experience. I think you're paying as much for the experience of doing that and having that relationship with the artist uh, and to do that with thousands of people. I mean, that's part of I totally of agree with you. I totally agree with you. And that comes back to that issue of like live music is an eminently public phenomenon. Like I think that people are drawn to being part of a crowd and that's a big part of... and. But I think it also matters, like, what does the star provide? Part of what the star provides is the ability for people to assume that they share something with all the other people in the room. Yeah, I remember being at a concert with Joan Baez, mm -hmm. and she took the mud point, she'd been playing her guitar, mm -hmm. um, and she took the microphone and she turned it around so it was facing the audience, oh, it yeah. was not facing her, and she sang a cappella and filled this huge hall with her voice, and the place was hushed. You, everyone stopped breathing. It was like we shared this moment of exquisite beauty with this artist. That, that's something you can't do, listening by yourself at home or on the radio. Right, and I think at the same time, one of the things you see in different kinds of performance settings is like artists have different strategies for how they create that sense of connection right and intimacy so, yes intimacy but some genres of music foreground that intimacy more than others so like Baez is a folk performer folk music has always prioritized a kind of intimacy arena rock not so much right and so i think that's also part of what we see is that like depending on what type of music you're talking about what genre there are very different aesthetics about like what that intimacy looks like we have been speaking with Steve Waxman. His new book, Live Music in America, A History from Jenny Lynn to Beyonce. He will be speaking at 33 Hawley Street. 
this Sunday at 2 o'clock, sponsored by Historic Northampton and, of course, the uh, 33 Holly Street as well. And this book is fascinating. Steve is a wonderful teacher. You're going to love this. Books will be on sale there? Yes, they will. Okay. Provided by Broadside. Where I bought my book. Uh, please do buy this at your local independent bookstore. Live Music in America, History from Jenny Lynn to Beyonce. Steve Waxman, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for this fabulous, fabulous history. Thanks for the book. Thanks for your time. Thanks for all you bring to our community. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Connecticut man was arraigned in Eastern Hampshire District Court Wednesday in connection to a shooting on Mill Valley Road in Hadley on New Year's Eve. 28-year-old Mark Victoris of Waterbury, Connecticut, pleaded not guilty to numerous charges, including armed assault with intent to murder. Hadley Police Department said the victim, a 59-year-old man, was found conscious and alert with non-life-threatening injuries shortly before 4 p.m. on Saturday, December 31st. He was treated for a gunshot wound to his shoulder. Plans for a passenger rail service from Boston to North Adams are in the works, and the project could cost as much as $2 billion. Last night, around 150 people attended a virtual workshop to hear what consultants hired by the Massachusetts Department of Transportation presented as two alternatives for service. State Rep. Natalie Blay said the turnout reflects broad public support for the new rail service. There's so much potential for and excitement for Western Mass Rail. And you can see by the numbers, I'm sure, that we are very interested in seeing this project move forward and are grateful for the opportunity for public participation. The first alternative would cost around $1 billion and require fewer upgrades to the existing freight train line. And the other would cost over $2 billion and require upgrades from Fitchburg to North Adams. The next step of the Northern Tier Passenger Rail Study is to develop four additional service plan alternatives through a public comment process. The final study is expected to be completed this spring. Icy surfaces early this morning, snow showers through the first half of the day, then rain and snow showers this afternoon, a high of 42 to 46. Plain rain tonight, heavy at times, an overnight low of 36 to 42. Rain in the morning tomorrow with a high of 50 to 54, mostly cloudy and breezy in the afternoon. The weekend will be dry and in the 30s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Ranchivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los principales demócratas están dejando la puerta abierta para reevaluar el papel del controvertido sistema de pruebas estandarizadas de Massachusetts, ya que algunos defensores de la educación revitalizan los llamados para abolir las pruebas o eliminar el requisito de que los estudiantes de último año de secundaria las aprueben para recibir un diploma. Los legisladores crearon el Sistema de Evaluación Integral de Massachusetts en una ley de reforma educativa de 1993 que tenía como objetivo mejorar la responsabilidad y el rendimiento escolar. La Asociación de Maestros de Massachusetts se han opuesto durante mucho tiempo a la prueba. La asociación volvió a fijar su mirada en el examen en diciembre cuando estableció sus objetivos de política para la sesión legislativa de 2023-24 y describió los exámenes SEMCAS como destructivos y punitivos. Mientras tanto, Massachusetts por primera vez en al menos ocho años tiene una gobernadora que puede estar más dispuesta a la idea de cambios en el sistema SEMCAS. En otras informaciones, los jueces de la Corte Suprema de Estados Unidos lidiaron el martes con una disputa laboral que podría reducir las protecciones federales para los sindicatos al facilitar que los empleadores presenten demandas por huelgas que resulten en daños a la propiedad de la empresa. Algunos de los jueces conservadores parecían inclinados a reforzar la capacidad de las empresas para llevar a los sindicatos a los tribunales estatales, mientras que los jueces liberales expresaron su preocupación por la erosión del poder de huelga de los trabajadores organizados. La jueza liberal Elena Kagan dijo que un fallo amplio a favor de las empresas podría socavar las decisiones sindicales sobre cuándo ir a la huelga, que a menudo se hacen para presionar a los empleadores causando daños económicos. Por su parte, el presidente del Tribunal Supremo Conservador, John Roberts, dijo que existe una distinción entre causar daño económico y la destrucción intencional de la propiedad. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
And this is our usual Thursday Reverend and the Rabbi segment. Our Reverend this morning is Michael McSherry, pastor at the Edwards Church here in Northampton. I'm so pleased that Michael McSherry could be with us this morning. I'd like to begin by asking you about a topic that is really gaining momentum, at least in terms of its public discussion, and maybe as well in terms of some very concrete application, and that is the question of reparations. And I would be interested to know whether or not there is any guidance in the Bible, uh, in your Mm -hmm. opinion, uh, with regard to this question of reparations. Pastor, help us out on that. Well, that's fascinating, Bill. Um, guidance, I, I would say I'm, I'm at a loss to um, point to a scripture that gives direct guidance. Um, and maybe if I knew, um, maybe if I knew my scripture better, I could think of something immediately. But I would, you know, the general notion of um, atonement, of making amends, of acknowledging a wrong done and a wrong that continues. Um, that's all over uh, biblical morality. That notion of, of acknowledging when you when you either participated in a wrong or continued to benefit from a wrong that was done in the past. Is there some sense uh, in the Bible or and I think that's the right question, about some kind of collective responsibility for wrongs that are done? Hmm. Um, in, in, the, in, the, um, in what Christians call the New Testament, right, the, the, the Gospels, the letters of Paul and so forth, um, especially in the, most explicitly in the, the book called the Acts, and, um, and in the letters of Paul, there's this notion of a religious community being a, a body, a corporate body, and um, the members of the body are responsible for each other and to each other. And uh, we're told that in the earliest um, generations of the Christian communities, that people shared out of what they had in order to meet each other's needs. Um, so that's a, sort of a model for community. Um, there's also the notion that, you know, the, I, I believe the, the Abrahamic faiths that the, the people of God were chosen by God to live in a special relationship that made them righteous so that they, they would be a model for others. And that the, the special relationship that they shared with God would then extend to all people on earth. When you reflect on that, do you see manifestations of of how that applies uh, in in our contemporary world? And I'm going to bring this back to, I want to bring our conversation back to the question specifically of reparations, but uh, take us from that, uh, I think, pretty... uh, uh, oh, yeah. pristine kind of statement of aspirational statement. That's not 35,000 feet, that's 100,000 feet, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but, but bring it bring it down to for a practical application, if, yeah. if you could. So I, I was always intrigued that John Lewis would stand in the well of the Congress once a year and propose, was it House Bill 1 or House Bill, I forget the, the bill number, but the bill calling for a congressionally sponsored um, study group to look at the question of reparations. And it's never passed, but he would he would reintroduce it every year. And he basically said, what are we afraid of? Why can't we even talk about this? Why can't we even look at this in a serious and systematic way? And then in um, um, one of his, I can't remember which essay it was in, but, but I know that, um, uh, ta Coates, you know, makes the argument that, well, makes the observation that he doesn't think the United States as a country will ever, will ever have a, a thoroughgoing conversation about the possibility of reparations or a suggestion for reparations 
but he wishes we just have the courage to have the conversation, to see what we're resistant to acknowledging, or could we even hear each other out in why we think, those of us who think it's an appropriate thing to do, or at least talk about, and those of us who just, you know, deny responsibility, deny ongoing effects of the historic racism, or, you know, get caught up in the mechanics of how would this be administered, and when do you say enough is enough? So, but, you know, we need to at least be willing to talk about it. That said, I'm wondering what you think personally and or in your position as pastor at the Edwards Church about people who would say exactly what you just alluded to, which is, look, I wasn't here. I wasn't alive. My family didn't directly have anything to do with slavery. Um, why am I supposed to take some of my hard-earned money and give it to people who also weren't here uh, and that I was not responsible for and I'm not and I'm not responsible for? What's your response to that argument, which I didn't phrase particularly well or eloquently, but I, I, would... I think I, I think I, so I kind of take this as the unacknowledged flip side of white privilege. Um, you know, we live in a, a society and a culture and an economic setting in which there are measurable and I, I think demonstrable advantages to being white even if you you know are born into a family with no money in a zip code with low prospects you still you know if if you if you hustle if you get a you know the best education you can you have fewer people and i'm not saying all people do this because i know all people don't but you have fewer people making snap judgments about you because of your skin color you have a better chance at getting a good, well-paying job. And um, there are other sort of system systemic advantages to being white and disadvantages to being a person of color. So that's just one piece of evidence about the ongoing um, lack of a level playing field. So if you if if you are prepared to acknowledge that um, anyone in this country who's is um, African American, black, um, or brown, you know, walks into a job interview or you know, walks down the street with disadvantage. If you're prepared to acknowledge that, then I think you need to ask yourself why wouldn't we, um, why wouldn't we put some weights in the form of economic reparation on the scale to counterbalance that. Yeah, I, I am privileged. Let me count the ways. I, I, I absolutely think that is a crucial component of all this. I'm wondering from your perspective as a pastor, as a member of this community, mm -hmm. as a leader of this community, whether you think Northampton is ready for, willing to engage in some kind of reparations to have this discussion and to come up with something concrete well i know there's a difference of opinion within my congregation so you know <laughs> whether or not all of northampton is ready is you know i can only speculate we'll find out right um i intend to speak in support of it at a, at a um you know at, at a local meeting and um and I do not speak for everyone in my congregation. You know, I, I you're aware, I'm sure, as I am, from a recent um, piece in the Gazette that um, Jonathan Edwards, for whom this church is named, um, was himself an enslaver. And although I have not read uh, the historic sermons that, in which he, I am told. Um, defended uh, the practice um, you, you you know you got you got to acknowledge that that's troubling and some people dismiss it as oh well you know lots of people were you know influenced by the um, the conditions of their time um, but um, 
he was a religious leader and influential and it is uh, painfully unfortunate to know that um, he not only um, was influenced by his culture enough to uh, engage in that practice himself, but defended it and, you know, said it was a good thing. We are speaking with Michael McSherry. He is a pastor at the Edwards Church. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more on this segment of The Reverend and the Rabbi. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This is uh, from Rioja, and this is the Tierra. That means Earth. Thank, Thank you. you. I knew my language acquisition would come in handy. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. When you compare Spanish wines, Rioja especially, which is kind of like the Bordeaux of Spain, 90% of the time, stuff that you can get for $12, $15, $20 for Rioja is going to rival things that you're going to get for $30, $35 for Bordeaux. The Tierra is still under $20 at $18.99. I mean, give me a break. I know. Yeah. Nose a little dustier on this one. Yeah. And fruit. Almost like a caramel, actually. It's like cherry cola. Oh, yeah, and this is a, is a Crianza. It is a Crianza. Which is a newer, like a fresher Rioja, right? That's true. Not yeah. quite Hoven. Crianza, it, it doesn't involve nearly as much of the barrel aging as a Reserva or Grand Reserva. I love this. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday Roberto's? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Pasta bolognese, butternut squash ravioli, chicken broccoli alfredo, and the best thin crust pizza in the valley. Eat in at the bar or order online at Roberto's in downtown Northampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael McSherry, pastor at the Edwards Church in Northampton. We have been talking about reparations, and during the break, Michael, we continued our conversation, and you told me, and I would like you to share with our listeners, if you would, some of your family history with regard to this topic of reparations and enslavement. Sure, Bill. Um, I've learned since 2020 that um, Patrick McSherry, who was the first um, person of Irish descent on my father's side to come to this country, uh, came in through Philadelphia, moved inland um, to what is now called McSherry's Town, Pennsylvania, and um, started to work very hard to improve his lot. One of the things he did to improve his lot was buy land, uh, start farming, and then um, enslave 
uh, for African-Americans, as well as um, use the services of a handful of indentured servants from Europe. Um, so he took full advantage of what the law allowed at that time. And uh, um, I, I was disappointed, not overly shocked, but disappointed. When he died, um, he, had, he had become a, a very uh, rich individual. He owned a lot of the land in town, which is why I think they changed the name, and left a farm for each of his six children. So he was he did very well for himself, but it's undeniable that he did well for himself at the expense of other people. And so I think it would not be, um, it would, you know, the McSherry family since then has had the advantage um, overall of being born, um, you know, as they used to say, uh, or as they still say, you know, about uh, some uh, noteworthy national politicians, he was born on third base and thought he hit a home run. Um, I know I was born on base and that I got there uh, because people in the prior generation had an advantage and passed it on to me. So I think I, I think I may owe it to the descendants of those four individuals if I can ever find out who they were. If you take that observation and extrapolate it nationally and you look at um, the industries that the um, enslaved individuals in our country um, were used to build, it's, I think, pretty persuasive that we need to look at, you know, how people are still suffering under institutionalized racism and do everything we can to rectify it. One thing I've learned in the last few years that I didn't really realize was how much the North prospered because of the enslavement of people much more widely in the South. And that's something for which I think we bear a collective responsibility, not just- Right, the mills, the mills that, that, that worked all that cotton that was grown in the South and the banks and insurance companies that financed it and insured it. Many of whom, many of which were here in the North and here in Massachusetts, even here in Northampton as well. Michael McSherry, we really appreciate your time. Michael McSherry is the pastor at the Edwards Church here in Northampton. This has been our Reverend and the Rabbi segment for this week, and we really appreciate your time, your insights, your, your leadership. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and Habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Grab a hammer, lend a hand, build a better world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, pvhabitat.org. Have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building, generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain. The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street. Live and local for news more and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's